In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Does anybody remember your high school language course? What did you take? Spanish, French, German, Latin? Anybody remember that? Did you take something else, something other than what I listed? Or how about college? How about a grandparent or a parent who spoke a different language than English? Can you still speak it? Write it? Read it? How much of it do you remember today? Now, I've got to be honest, I've always been much better at reading and translating something than I have been in conversation. Now, Jenny was a linguistics major in college, focused on American Sign Language, and she's always had a totally different relationship with other languages than I have. I want you to keep this in mind as we talk about Nehemiah this morning. Now, in our Old Testament reading last week, we read that God was talking to his people. He said he couldn't keep silent any longer. He cannot rest until restoration had taken place. No longer would his people be called desolate or forsaken. Instead, they would become the glory of God. And in Nehemiah, we see that continue to happen. Now, during the reign of Artaxerxes I, Nehemiah was the cupbearer of the king. He was in charge of all the drinks that had to be served to Artaxerxes. And because of the real threat of his assassination attempt, the cupbearer had to be someone who's utterly trusted by the king. As Danny Kay would say, the pestle with the poisons and the vessel with the pestle, but the chalice from the palace is the brew that is true. Right? Twenty years prior to this, or about a year or so before the Babylonian Empire collapses, King Cyrus II sent a new governor to the land that had been Israel and Judah. And along with this governor, Cyrus sends a high priest named Joshua and his cousin Ezra and others back to Jerusalem to restore the temple. He even sends back all the temple hardware with them. Now we're about 20 years later, and Nehemiah hears that his kin are being harassed by their neighbors. So he goes and talks to the king. The king appoints him governor of the province and with permission to rebuild Jerusalem's wall and a letter from the king to that effect. He also had permission to get wood from the king's forests. He goes back to Jerusalem and from day one he's under pressure from those who oppose him. When they start, they're just out there mocking everything they do as they start rebuilding the walls. When the wall's about halfway done, they decide they can't let this finish, so they plan an attack at night. But word gets back to Nehemiah, and he posts guards and tells everyone to go everywhere, fully dressed in their armor and with their weapons. So that plan doesn't work. His enemies invite him to come meet with them outside the city, and Nehemiah senses a trap. So he sends back word to them that he's very busy at a great work and cannot stop to chat with them, just like the king had said. So they start spreading rumors that Nehemiah is rebuilding the walls so he can throw off the empire and declare himself king of Judah. Then they try to scare Nehemiah into hiding in the holiest of holies in the temple. But all these attempts to hinder and stop what God was trying to do came to nothing. Exhausted, Nehemiah and his people are able to have the walls of the city back to a defensible position in 52 days. And now the only way to stop them is to have a siege of Jerusalem and his opponents lose heart and give up. 
Nehemiah begins to organize the people in his province and starts to lead a revival. And now with the temple and the walls rebuilt, it says all the people gathered together in the square before the water gate. They told the scribe Ezra to bring back the books of the laws of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Accordingly, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could hear with understanding. Now that phrase at the end there means that all the children old enough to understand what was being said got drug along too. And for half a day, the law was read, and then it had to be interpreted for the crowds of people hearing. Now remember, at this point, they'd been out of the land of Israel for 70 or more years. 70 years from the time Ezra and Joshua returned. Some of these people had not been in Israel in 90 years. And they'd lived all over Babylon and all over the empires that succeeded Babylon. And Ezra's reading that scroll in Hebrew, and most of them hearing him that morning maybe could read a little Hebrew, maybe could speak a little Hebrew, but they didn't understand it. And if they did, it wasn't well. Like me with my high school Latin. They've learned other languages. They had to adapt because they've been deported all over the place and had to live with their neighbors. The Bible says they had to have a group of 13 Levites to interpret what Ezra was saying. Could you imagine that this morning if I read a passage and then we had to stop while 13 other people interpreted it for you in different languages all around? And then we read the next paragraph and continue that way until we were done? Once they heard the words of God, they started weeping. But instead, Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. And then Nehemiah said to him, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions of them to whom nothing has been prepared. For this day is holy to the Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. God does not want his laws, his rules, to be a source of grief. Even if that source of grief may be with our ability, our inability, to live up to the law. Our gospel this morning also begins with a reading of God's word. Jesus comes back to his home province of Galilee and begins to teach in the synagogues. And everyone loved his teaching. Then he gets back to his hometown, Nazareth, to the synagogue, and was given the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And he chooses the reading that morning, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He handed the scroll back to the attendant. Now in the synagogue, remember that you stood to read God's word, and you sat down to teach. So he sat down. And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Imagine that. You're listening to the preacher that morning. Stand up. Read a messianic passage. One that everyone knows is talking about the Messiah. And as soon as he sits down, the first words out of his mouth are, It's me. It had to be shocking to hear that that day. Now next week, we're going to see what their response is. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, 
Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we are all made to drink from one spirit. Paul has a long discussion this morning comparing God's people. The Messiah has redeemed his church to a body. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member but of many. For if the foot would say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear would say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. The whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? And if the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If we were all a single member, where would the body be? Paul starts his analogy by pointing out that your body parts don't just arbitrarily leave the body because they're a different part. He goes on to say the body doesn't eject parts for the same reason. We need them all. We need our hands, our feet, our eyes, our ears, and our heads. But God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior members, that there may be no dissension within the body. But the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all members suffer with it. If one is honored, all rejoice together with it. Now in our bodies, when everything's feeling well, we get up in the morning, we rejoice. Right? If everything's feeling well and working fine, it's a good morning. When we get pain in even the smallest part, when we stub our toe, we get a paper cut on a hand, or God forbid, step on a Lego, the smallest parts of the body cause as much pain as the largest when we hurt. Now we instinctively kind of understand that from our own experiences with our natural bodies and our life experiences. And Paul begins the passage by saying no matter who we are, who our parents or ancestors were, the amount of money our families had, where we were born, when we become Christians and we are baptized, we all become one body of Christ. And our epistle reading this morning ends with Paul talking about our individual callings within that body. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. God has appointed the church of first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then deeds of power, then gifts of healing, forms of assistance, forms of leadership, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues or do all interpret? but strive for the greater gifts. We read last week, Paul told the Corinthians that the gifts of God were left to help us through the Holy Spirit. This week we read Paul reminding them that we're each gifted in different ways. And just like the hand shouldn't be jealous of the foot, we shouldn't be jealous or frustrated with other parts of the body of Christ. But it's easy to be frustrated or jealous. Do you remember the story of Mary when she sees Martha sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening and learning, while Mary's running around trying to take care of a house full of guests? Or me, when I don't understand why others don't see things the way that I do? Before you go and criticize, maybe go and ask the person why. Why are they doing that and not what I'm doing? Why does that minister to you? It doesn't mean a thing in the world to me. Why do you like this and not that? Why are you busy doing that kind of ministry when I'm doing this kind of ministry? I don't understand it. could be because our background and experiences are different. It could be because we're each called to a different kind of work. And it could be as simple as the fact that you're the foot and they're the hand. 
Our psalm this morning says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Let that be true for all, to all of us in all that we say and do within the body of Christ. Amen.